Welcome to SCD Church's podcast. You can always join us for our live services Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings out in our West Auditorium. You can also tune into our services live online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages. Thanks so much for listening. All right, well, let's thank them for leading us in worship this morning. Thank you, guys. And if uh, you're here for the first time, I want to give you a special welcome. Thanks for being here. Maybe you came to one of our trunk or treat uh, the, this last week. It's kind of crazy. We had thousands of people here. How many people were here? You got to get some candy, give some candy, something. Yeah, okay. So quite a few of you guys. We had lots of folks on campus, and maybe you were one of them, and uh, you're coming to check out the church, and we're glad that you're here. Uh, so... There's this book that we used to read growing up, and I'm a pastor's kid, if you don't know, and, and so a lot of our books were kind of related to the Bible and Christianity and things. And one of the books that we thought was great when we were kids was uh, this book where it was prayers that kids had written to God. And so I was little, and it's a super cheesy book looking back on it, but we thought it was just the greatest thing ever. We thought it was so funny. And so um, a couple of the, the questions that were in that book that kids were asking God was something like, um, I went to a wedding and they kissed in church. Are you okay with that? <laughs> or um, how do you love everybody in the world? There's only four people in my family and I could never do it. Um, did you mean for a draft to look like that or was it an accident? Is Reverend Coe a friend of yours or do you just know him through business? <laughs> now there's of course more serious questions that we ask. My kids are kind of in that age where they're starting to ask some very difficult questions about God and about faith and, and it usually happens when we're driving in the car somewhere. This last week they came up with a, a bunch of questions, questions that maybe you've asked before. Questions like, well, why is there evil in the world? Or who created God? That's, that's been a popular one amongst my, my kids recently. And we usually talk through some of these questions and possible answers to these questions. One question that they have asked, and maybe you've asked this too, is why did Jesus have to die? Like, why did Jesus... Now, if you grew up in church, um, the Sunday school answer, which I think is true, is Jesus died for our sins. And this is the answer that the church has given since day one. So if you go to 1 Corinthians 15, there's this creed, and in it, it has a few statements. And these statements go all the way back to within just a couple years of Jesus' death and resurrection. So at like day one, Christians have been saying that Jesus died for our sins. But I, I want to dig a little deeper than that, because the follow-up question I would ask is, well, why couldn't he just forgive What's up with this whole death thing? Like, I forgive people all the time, and it does not require me to sacrifice any of my children. Why does God have to give his son? And why in such a gruesome way? I mean, it's bloody, it's barbaric. It just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Now, you might be a person who is a Christian, and the answer of Jesus died for our sins is good enough. And I get that. I totally understand the reason behind that. Because I think your reasoning goes something like this. If Jesus really did predict his death, die, and then resurrect, and he said he did it so that I could be forgiven of my sins, if you're able to do that, I'm going to believe you. If you're the type of person who can die and resurrect, and the reason you give is because I needed to be forgiven of my sins, I'm going to go, good enough. I don't need a whole lot of reasons more than that. I don't even have to understand the complexities of how that all works. And this is how most of us live our lives, is we don't understand a lot of the things that we believe are true or that we believe work. So, for example, my cell phone. If you were to ask me, Cody, how does your cell phone work? I would say, 
Well, you just you tap it like that and then it works. I don't know, like that's how it works for me. And you say, no, 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 like more than that. How does it work? How does it connect to the internet? What is the internet, by the way? And how does it, uh, I would go, I don't, what? No, I don't know. I don't know how any of this works. But it doesn't stop me from believing that it works and, and using it and knowing it to be true. And so faith is kind of like that, where you go, I don't know. He died for my sins. And if you really did raise from the dead, that's good enough for me. But some of us were a little bit more, I don't know if it's skeptical. Maybe we're not ready to come to faith because we have some questions. And one of those questions is, why do I need this to begin with? Why couldn't Jesus just forgive me? Or why this gruesome death? And so for those of us who have a lot more questions, um, we're going to be looking at that today. And there's been throughout church history, a lot of explanations. It's called the uh, theories of atonement, meaning why, what happened when Jesus died that had the ability to forgive us of our sins? And there's lots of different theories about this. And we're going to look at a passage today that I think is going to maybe help answer this question. So last week we started a new series. It's in the book of Romans. And if you're not familiar with the book of Romans, it is a book written by the apostle Paul, who was once not a Christian. In fact, he went and he killed Christians, became a Christian because Jesus spoke to him and said, hey, why are you persecuting my people? And then he went and he started planting churches all around, uh, all around them, uh, uh, all, around, all around the world, uh, or the known world at that time. And he would write them letters. And in these letters, he would tease out some of the theological significance of what Jesus did and, and why it matters and how it can change your life. And one of those letters was the book of Romans. And since he had never been to Rome, the church he was writing to, this one's probably one of the most thorough explanations of who Jesus is philosophically and theologically. And so we've said that Romans is like kind of deep theology. You got to really pay attention. Well, today's passage, I would say, would be in the deep end of the deep end. It doesn't get much deeper than this. And so if you could walk out of here today and go, I got about 50% of that. Right on. You are, you got 50% more than you came in here with. All right. And so there might be some stuff that, and we're going to try to make it as understandable as possible, but what he's going to say is pretty intense. And so we're going to be in Romans chapter 3. The first 19 verses of this, um, Paul is pretty much saying, in essence, we're all messed up. Like, we are messy. My, I, I think I shared this at one of the services last weekend. It was my birthday last week, and my dad said, Cody, now that you're middle age, which I thought was rude. Uh, it's not how you begin a conversation. Now that you're two-thirds age, um, what have you learned so far in your life? And the first thing that came out of my mind was, I've learned how messy we are. Like, people make life so much more difficult than it needs to be. Life is going to be hard, but we just make it exponentially more difficult by many of our decisions. And so that's kind of what Paul says in the first 19 verses. He goes, why are we such a mess? What is up with humanity? And then he begins starting to explain what Jesus did on the cross. So, verse 20 is where we're going to start. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. So we've got to define a few words here. The first thing that we've got to understand is, what does he mean when he says the law? Well, the law is God's law. It's his moral law. It's the things that he says are right and wrong that flow from his character. So he is perfect. And so the things that he deems right and just and good are perfection. Those things are good. That is the standard. That is the law. And we talked last week about the moral law. Where does it come from? How do we know it? Well, the law of God or this moral law, can, we can know it in a few different ways. So if you're a person reading this in the first century and you're Jewish, you would probably say, well, the law was what was revealed in the Old Testament. There's all these different commands that God makes and probably the ones that you're familiar with at least are the Ten Commandments. 
And it tells us things that we should and we shouldn't do. So that would be God's law. But if you're a Christian and you're looking at the scriptures, you could add to that. You could say, well, there's all these commands that Jesus makes and they all kind of boil down to this idea that I should love other people the way that he has loved me. And so that's part of God's law. But even if you're not a church person, you've never read the Bible, you've never heard of Jesus, you still know God's law. Because as we learned last week, he wrote it on our hearts. It's a part of our conscience that being made in the image of God, we know what is good and evil. We know what we should and we shouldn't do. And then there's this other term that he uses here is, is righteous, or we're going to see different variations of it. One um, translation would say justified. And it simply means that if you are righteous, you're in right standing with God. So when God looks at you, there's no junk, there's no obstacles, there's no conflict, there's no awkwardness, there's no relational conflict there. It's we're good. Everything between me and God is a-okay. We have nothing in between us. And what Paul is going to say here, and the next thing is, he says, he says this, he says, here's what the law is going to do. He says, rather, through the law, so God's moral law, we become conscious of our sin. Now, here's what the law is supposed to do. The law that is written on your heart, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the purpose of that is not to make you a better person. It's not so that you can see what you should do and then go and live up to it. What it does is it reveals how messed up you are. Because everybody in this room, whether you're a Christian or not, knows you know what you should do, and yet you don't do it all the time. So for me, there are tons. I can give you examples from today about things I know I should do. I have the ability to do them. And yet there's something inside me that says, but I'm not going to. Right before I walked out here, literally a minute and a half ago, I was eating a sprinkled donut. That's not my first for today. I started with donut holes, thinking probably less calories than those. They're smaller, and I just ended with a full donut. And so I know what I should eat. I have the ability to eat the right things. And what do I do? I do what I'm not supposed to do. And all of us experience this. We experience this when we, of course, don't eat healthy and we don't exercise, but we also do it when we're driving and we're texting. I know I'm not supposed to right now, and I know there's probably consequences, but I'm going to do it anyway. What's weird about humanity is we can, we can kind of, in a way, predict the outcomes. We have the ability to imagine what could happen. And so we know there could be consequences for our decisions. Like, if I do this, I could lose something in the future. My finances, relationships, emotional, physical damage. And yet, within us, we still choose to do what we know we shouldn't do. What is that? Well, Paul would say there's this thing called sin, and it lives within you and I. And the real issue is not that we don't have enough willpower, we don't have enough discipline, or that somebody made fun of us when we were on the playground, or that we don't have enough education and we just don't feel good enough about ourselves. No, 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 no. Those aren't going to solve the issue. The real issue is that you and I, we have this thing called sin, and we know this to be true. You may not like the word sin, but you know that you're not who you're supposed to be. So um, a phrase that I've heard quite a bit is, nobody's perfect. And we usually use it in context in which we're doing something dumb. And we try to get, well, nobody's perfect. You know, nah, nobody's perfect. What are you saying when you say nobody's perfect? You're saying there is a standard, there is a law, there is perfection. And I am not that. I know what I should be, I know what I should do, and yet I don't. I don't not only live up to the expectations that God has for me, I don't even live up to my own expectations. There's something within us that knows that we're not 
who we are supposed to be. We oftentimes try to make ourselves righteous or justify ourselves. Like there's something within us that knows we're not living up. And so what we try to do is we try to prove ourselves. We're going to prove ourselves to the world. We're going to prove ourselves to to our own voices within that says that we're not enough. We're going to even prove to God that we're valuable and that we are worthy and that we are someone. Workaholics, why do people work so much? Well, what they're trying to do is they're trying to justify themselves. They think if I can work enough, then I will prove that I'm worthy. Or people who are so concerned about the way that they look and how other people perceive them. What are they trying to do? They're trying to prove that I am somebody, that I am worthy. People who shamelessly promote themselves on social media, what are they doing? They're justifying themselves. And I don't mean to pick on just those people. Everybody does it. My kids, on a daily basis, have a battle between themselves. And it's who can get mom and dad's attention and show them how special they are. So... I can almost guarantee at some point today, one of my kids will come up and go, watch how hard I can throw this ball. (laughs) Whoa, dude, whoa. Or one of them will come up and go, look what I drew. And I go, oh, that's amazing. Remind me what that is again. Yep, that's what I thought it was. That's exactly what it is. They'll continually fight for my attention so that I will say, you're worthy, you're enough. Because there's something within the human heart that just knows, that just tries to prove, that says we're not who we're supposed to be. But then in verse 21, he says this. He says, so we know who we're not supposed to be. The law shows us. So how are we gonna, how are we gonna find some resolution to this problem? He says, well, it's gonna be apart from the law. So the law has the ability to show us that we're not enough. It's a diagnostic tool. It's kind of like a thermometer. The law can show you you're sick. It can show you you have a fever, but it doesn't have the power to actually do anything about it. So the solution is gonna have to come apart from the law. It's gonna have to be something else. Next slide. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Now, the law and the prophets, this is the Old Testament, that whatever the solution is to this problem that we have, God has been foreshadowing. He's been pointing in the Old Testament, all the stories and all the laws and all the prophets, the people were pointing forward to this solution that God was going to provide. And here's something really important, and this isn't just unique to this scripture, it's in all of scripture. Where is the righteousness going to come from? It's going to come from you and me. Oh, no, it doesn't say that. Is it going to come from the government? (laughs) Government, please. Um, Is it going to come from celebrities? Is it going to come from self-help? Is it going to come from education? Is it going to come from... No. It says the way that this is going to be dealt with is it's going to be dealt with by God. Because here's the big picture of all of life. We live in a highly individualistic society. It means that we believe we are at the center of everything. Like all of life is about us and our wants and our desires. If we look deep within ourselves, that's where the answers lie. We just have to be true to our authentic selves. And so we believe that everything is about us. Pick any area of life, marriage. Well, I don't want to be married anymore because they're not fulfilling my desires. Or, 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 kids. Uh, Well, I'm going to use my kids as a way to fulfill some of my desires. Now, we don't explicitly say this, but I see it. Or maybe my job. My job is no longer fulfilling. It's no longer um, celebrating me. It doesn't understand the kind of privilege they have that I work there, and so I'm not going to work there anymore. Even my time, my money, my body, my energy, it's all focused on me and my wants. Now, I know this is hard to believe, but we bring this attitude that we're the center of the universe to church. No, I know. It's crazy. Not this church, but I've heard of other churches. 
where like you might have to wait in line to get your kids after this. And you'll look around and go, How, why are these people in my way? Who are these people? Good, worship Jesus on your own time. This is my time. In the parking lot, how dare you back out while I'm trying to drive? And we do this when we read the scriptures. We open it up and we go, this is a book about me. I can prove it. Let's take a popular story. One like, you know, that everybody's familiar with, David and Goliath. When you read the story of David and Goliath, who are you in that story? David. Of course I'm David. Because tomorrow morning I'm going to go into work and I'm going to slay. Those giants are not going to get in my way. Because I'm courageous, I'm strong, I'm going to prove who I am. No giants better be in my way. You know who you are in that story? You are the Israelite that is hiding in the forest, hoping somebody's going to come along and save you. You're not David. And the story's not about you. It's always about God. Now, there may be implications for you. Of course there are. But you're not the point of the story. Verse 22. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This last verse, very, very popular. Well, I should say popular, very well known. In modern culture, not popular. Because what he's saying here is he's saying this problem of sin, this rebellion, this breaking of God's law, this isn't unique to just people who are kind of messed up. This is everybody's problem. This is a universal problem issue. Paul says here is pretty offensive to modern people because we believe that we are good people who sometimes do bad things. But what he's saying is, no, you're bad people who sometimes do good things. There's a um, new series on Netflix. I haven't watched it and probably won't, but it's about Jeffrey Dahmer. And it reminded me of a, a documentary that came out maybe five or six years ago that was pretty popular, and we were discussing it at one of our staff lunches. And the reason why we were talking about it is because in it, he said that he had become a Christ follower and was baptized. Jeffrey Dahmer did. And everybody at the table was just wrestling with, okay, if he really did give his life over to Jesus, does this mean that he'll be in heaven one day? Like, you and I are going to be hanging out with Jeffrey Dahmer for eternity? And there's just something within us that goes, ah, that can't be right. That doesn't seem, I mean, this guy is the worst of the worst. There's no way that we are going to spend eternity with him. And then this question popped into my mind. Are you more like Jeffrey or Jesus? Are you more like Jeffrey Dahmer or Jesus? Now, you're going to know intuitively, I think he's going to say I'm more like Jeffrey, but I don't feel that way. Well, let's imagine, because this is how we kind of imagine ourselves, and we imagine that God looks at us. We kind of think of it like a spectrum, right? So we've got Jesus over here. He's the standard. He's perfect. And then we've got people like Jeffrey Dahmer and Hitler and the rest of the psychopaths on this side somewhere. And then if I'm going to find where I'm at on the scale, guess which side of the scale I'm on? Jesus' side, obviously. So I'm over here on the Jesus side. Now, I'm not going to claim, I'm not perfect. I'm going to claim to be Jesus, but I'm definitely on this side of the scale. The issue is that God doesn't grade on a curve. That's how I graduated high school, barely, was on a curve. (laughs) But that's not how, because remember, this is a holy, this is a perfect God. And so he doesn't go, that's good enough, man. Yeah, you, you made it, man. You did more good than bad. You're in. No. He says it's much more like a pass-fail. 
So are you on the pass side or the fail side? Meaning, are you guilty of sin or are you not guilty? Are you perfect? And all of us would say, okay, all right, well, maybe there's a third way. Maybe it's more like those are people who are convicted of felonies. I've been convicted of a misdemeanor and so I'm on probation, but I'm still good. No. Guilty, not guilty. Which category do you fit into? And we would have to admit, because even if you don't believe in the Bible, that all of us have not lived up to the law. The law that even you believe in your own heart, despite what the Bible says, you know that you are who you're supposed to be and you're not that person. And so all of us would fit into the guilty category. And here's what he says, he says, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So the bad news is everybody's guilty. The good news is that everybody, if they have faith in Jesus, they can be forgiven. And he says this righteousness. Now, righteousness is about being right, but let's think of it in a different way. Let's think of righteousness as a resume or a report card. Because what we do with those is we present them to people and we go, here's why I'm worthy. Look at my achievements, look what I've done, look what I've accomplished. And many of us think about getting into heaven like this as we go, God, here's my resume, here's my report card. Look at all the things I did. I fed homeless people three times, and so I'm good. And that kid that nobody liked on the playground, I said hello. And the person at work that nobody likes, I thought about being their friend one time. Okay, like it's all good. I'm a good person. I was getting ready to, um, to go to a, a, a funeral. And when I was on my way to the funeral, I was in the office, I remembered I didn't have my Bible with me. It was at home. And so I went into my dad's library and I went to go grab a Bible. And I grabbed one, and as I was looking through it to find the passage that I was going to be talking about, this piece of paper fell out. And I looked at it, and, and it's a piece of paper, and it says, Doyle Surratt, 5-1-1978. The hour was 9.35, and it was a test that he took. A possible score of 101, he got 60, which would be a failing grade, which I took a picture of and sent to everybody that I knew because I thought that was hilarious. Now, I don't have a whole lot of room to stand because I barely graduated high school myself, but I thought this was great. Now, here's what the scripture says. It says, when you come to God and you give him your resume, you give him your report card from your life, he looks at it and goes, yeah, you failed. You failed. But no, 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 but did you see right here? Did you see right here? I gave $20 in the offering. Did you see? And he goes, yeah, it's filthy rags. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done. He says, it's a pass fail and you failed. So Jesus comes along and he says, I'll take your report card. Give me your resume. I'll trade you. You can have mine. And he trades us. And on his, it says, perfect. Lived a perfect life, sinless, completely obedient to the Father's will. And so what we do is we trade him and he goes, I'll take yours and you take mine. And all the glory and the honor and the praise that I deserve because of what I have done, you're going to now receive. And the punishment that you deserve, now I'll take. The theological term for this is imputed righteousness. Is his righteousness is now given to us. And so when God looks at us, he doesn't see our filthy as rags report card. He now sees Jesus instead. He continues on verse 24. And all are justified freely by his grace. See, when Jesus offers to trade us report cards, 
Everything in us goes, what's the catch? Come on, nobody does that. <laughs> why, would you do, why would you give me your perfect report card, your perfect resume from mine that is trash? What's it gonna cost me? He says, it's not gonna cost you anything, it's free. Well, why? Why would you do this? What, what would motivate you? He says, oh, it's just my grace. I give you good, good gifts, not because you deserve them. In fact, you don't deserve them. Not because you could earn it, because you can't. It's simply because I love you. And so it's by grace that I give you these things. Continues in the second half of this verse. It says, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. This is an important word. This word here, redemption. Redemption means to buy back from captivity, implying that you and I were slaves. And you might think, well, I've never been a slave. I've never known a slave. In fact, it's kind of insulting to even say that. Well, let's think about it for a moment. Are there things in your life that you know you should do that you don't do? Yeah, we talked about that. In fact, is it so bad that you want to do good? You want to do right. But there is something within you that says, I just can't. I can't. I, I don't have enough willpower. I, don't have, I just can't do it. You know what? Here's how bad it is. It's not just that you know what you should do and you don't do it. The real issue is that even when you do the things that you're supposed to do, even when you know what is good and you do what is good, it's not enough. Like I have friends who really strive for what they would call work-life balance, where they are going to pursue their careers and they're going to go for that promotion and they're going to provide for their families. And then they also, on the other hand, are never going to miss family dinner. They're going to be at all the practices. They're doing all the right things. And then at the end of the day, they have this fear that they're just not enough. They can never do enough. They can never be a good enough parent. They can never provide enough. There's just this insecurity that they're not worthy. It's almost as if they can't justify themselves no matter how hard they try, but they'll continue to try because they're slaves. So you and I, we become slaves to our passions, to our desires. We can even become slaves to doing the things that we should do and we do do. Because everywhere that we look, we will be enslaved by someone or something unless we're bought back. And so that's what Jesus did. On the cross, it says that he purchased us, that we no longer have to prove, we no longer have to impress, that we no longer have to try to justify ourselves. He says, now you're good and it has nothing to do with what you do or don't do because I bought you back. You're mine now. Verse 25. God prevents, uh, presents Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. This word in some translations is propitiation through the shedding of his blood to, to be received by faith. When he's saying uh, the sacrifice of atonement is a term in which you make an offering in order to satisfy or appease the wrath of God. Instead of, instead of God pouring his wrath out, punishing the people who deserve it, instead he pours it out on Jesus. The second half of this verse, he did this to demonstrate. Now we're going to see this word a few times, to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. So if you ever think about, well, what, what did people do before Jesus? Well, it says that God put a pause button on his wrath. Because he knew that one day he would satisfy. And so all the sacrifices prior to Jesus that we see in the Old Testament, all of those were just pointing to the day in which God would come and ultimately take care of all of our sins. 
that he would ultimately pour out his wrath on his son. And so he puts a pause on all of them. It's a symbol of what is to come, that they are trusting, not in the sacrifice they're making of animals, but in the ultimate sacrifice that would come in the future. And he did this in order to what? To demonstrate. What is God demonstrating on the cross? Think about what happened in the image of Jesus on the cross. It's probably the most famous image in all human history. It's seen in symbols around the world. And it shows us a couple different things. One, it's a gruesome image. And so it shows us the severity of sin and the consequences of it. But it also shows us the love of God and it shows us the willingness he has and the extent that he'll go in order to reconcile us. It's brought countless people to faith and love in Jesus just by the imagery, the demonstration of what took place. And so he demonstrates it and he also spurs us on to love one another in a self-sacrificing kind of way. Second part of this verse says, he did it to demonstrate again his righteousness at the present time so as to be, and this is important, so as to be just and the one who justifies. What Paul is pointing to here is the characteristics of God. And we have these two characteristics that are actually in tension. Is we have the love of God, but then we also have the justice of God. So when we talk about God's justice, it means that he is the perfect, he is the perfect judge. That he has this law, and he always upholds this law with perfection. And so any kind of wrongdoing, any kind of evil, all of those must be punished. Their, their justice must be served. The wrongs must be made right in the end. And he can't just simply look the other way because he's a perfect judge. He must uphold his own law because it's who he is. And so let's imagine that you and I, heaven forbid, were attacked on the street this week, brutally and physically assaulted. And the police come along and they see the whole thing take place and they put him in handcuffs and and you stop the police officer and you go, oh, hold on. I want to forgive this man. And you forgive the person who did this to you. You know what's still going to happen to that person? They're still going to jail. Whether you forgave them or not, the cops will go, well, that's really nice of you, but we still have a law to uphold. And so even if you want to forgive this person, justice still must be served. And so they'll haul him off to jail. See, if we understand that there must be justice that is served, and it is a good thing if it is, how much more so is a perfect God understand that there must be justice? That in his very character, he must uphold his justice. I think also of a misunderstanding of what forgiveness is. We think of forgiveness as being free, that somebody's not going to be punished, but forgiveness is not free. Forgiveness is very costly. All that you're doing when you provide forgiveness is you're transferring the cost from them to you. So same scenario. That person assaults you. There's no police around. So you say, I forgive you. And they go off on their way. Someone's still paid. You just paid now. Because justice was not served. Now you have to absorb the consequences of what was done. And there's, there's nothing paid back to you in the end. And it's kind of hard to see it in this scenario. So let me give you a, maybe a more simple illustration. And I talked about this briefly a few months ago. Is my son, uh, Jed, of course, because that's who most of my stories are about, um, is we were, out in the, we were out in the driveway. And I had this old car I've been restoring forever. And I parked it out in the driveway in order to clean out the garage. And the kids came out in their plane. And he decided that he was going to jump in and, and play in daddy's truck. And I was leaning up against it, watching the kids. And... And all of a sudden, he throws this thing into neutral, and it starts rolling down the driveway. And I'm holding on, just trying to stop this thing, because at the end of our driveway is my wife's car. 
And he just, this thing just rams into the side of it and costs thousands of dollars of damage. Now in that moment, I have a decision to make. (laughs) I can have one less kid. (laughs) Kidding. I can tell him you're guilty, which he was, and I did. Dude, you messed up big time. This is a this is bad. It's not even just about money. It was dangerous. And you were And so I, I could tell him he's guilty. And I can either say, now you're going to have to pay for it for the rest of your life. You will be indebted to me. Or I can say, I forgive you and I'll pay for it. And that's what I did. I love you. I forgive you and I'll pay for it. See, that's what happens on the cross. As Jesus looks at us and he goes, you don't have the resources to be able to pay for this. Remember, filthy rags, you got nothing. But because I love you, and you're guilty, but because I love you, I'm gonna pay for it. See, we have these, this tension in God. And it's a good tension because of his perfection. He's perfectly just. He must condemn sin. You broke the law, I'm a perfect judge. And then on the other hand is his love, and he says, I want to have a relationship with you. I want us to be reconciled. I want to forgive you. And so what does he do? He says, you are guilty, but I will pay. There's an old illustration I grew up with and it still sticks in my mind that makes sense of it is kind of like a judge. Imagine I'm standing in front of a judge and I'm clearly guilty of whatever I'm being accused of. Everybody knows it and so the the judge says, you're guilty. I can't just wink at this, I can't forget it, everybody knows but I can't pay for it. And so what does he do? He takes off his robe, he steps down, he stands next to me and he pays it on my behalf. That's what Jesus does. There's one more part of this. Um, Oh, by the way, this is the way the answer to the question, at least maybe a summary of it, is why did Jesus have to die? Let's even throw that up there. Because God is just, sin requires a payment. But because God is love, he pays for it. Now all of this As you hear this, and maybe it's the first time you've heard this, or maybe it's clicking for the first time, you go, okay, well, how do I make that mine? Well, he tells us at the very end of the verse, and he says it over and over again. He says, well, you just have to have faith in Jesus. This can all be yours if you have faith in Jesus. What does it mean to have faith in Jesus? Well, on one hand, it's I affirm certain things about Jesus and who he is and his death and his resurrection, but it goes beyond that. It's a transfer of trust from me to him. A friend of mine recently got a new car and he wanted to show me it and show me all the bells and whistles and a very cool car, one I, I couldn't afford and one I wasn't familiar with. It. It's very, all this new technology. And so he walked me through it and he was showing me all the cool features and everything. And then when he was finally done showing me his car, he handed me the keys and he goes, all right, now you drive. I went, really? Okay, cool. And so I went, and this thing was so fast, I was giggling like a little girl as we were driving it. But I think that that, that's what it means, is he had faith in me. He had trust in me. He said, I'm not going to just show you. I'm not going to just tell you about it. Here's the keys. Go and drive this thing. I trust you. That's what it means to be a Jesus follower. That's what it means to put faith in Jesus, is we give him the keys of our life, and we go, you drive. I trust you. What we want is we want a Jesus who is a passenger as we drive. And we go, oh, yeah, okay, God, um, Jesus, do you see where we're headed? This is pretty cool. Do you see over here? No, can you give me a little advice? I'm a little lost right now. Can you give me some directions? I'm not really sure where I'm supposed to go. Can you tell me where I'm supposed to drive? And here's the problem. 
Jesus is not interested in being a passenger in your car. My dad, every time he gets in a vehicle, he demands to drive. He says it's because he gets motion sickness. I think it's a control issue that he has. Either way, he refuses to be a passenger. Jesus refuses to be a passenger in your car because you're a bad driver and you make him sick when you drive. He goes, you're not good at this, dude. Let me drive. Give me the keys. I know where we're supposed to go. I know how to get there. Get out of the way. And sometimes we'll give him the keys and we'll go, okay, you drive. When it comes to my salvation and my eternity, you're in the driver's seat. But when it comes to my body and my money and my time, I'm going to need you to scoot on over because I'm still in control. And he goes, I'm not interested. Either I drive or you drive. Who's driving this car? I think that's the question that all of us have to wrestle with is, so who's driving your car? I think there's a song about it, if I remember correctly. Jesus, take the... No, that's, that's not a good song. That's a bad song. That, that will never work. Um, but the question is, who, who, who's driving your car? See, if you want to receive this incredible gift, then you have to put your faith in Jesus. You eventually got to go. You take the keys. You're in the driver's seat. You're in control. And wherever you say that we're going to go, I trust you. And in whatever direction you want to take, I trust you. And even when it doesn't make sense and I wouldn't do it that way, it's probably a good thing because I trust you. I trust you more than I trust myself because I have put my faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, as we wrestle with this idea of your death and how it brings us not only freedom but forgiveness, it almost sounds too good to be true. It is something that we are not familiar with, a love that is beyond our capacity. And yet, Lord God, you tell us to just simply trust in you, to put our faith in you. And so, Lord, we, we constantly wrestle with one of being in the driver's seat, wanting to have the keys, wanting to be in control. And yet, Lord, you tell us time and time again to put our faith in you. And so, Lord, many of us, we come here today and we just reaffirm once again that we want you to be in control. Even in the moments when we try to grab the steering wheel back, Lord, we say that we trust you. And for those of us who are still wrestling with this idea of allowing you to be in the driver's seat, Lord, I just pray that you would, you would speak to us, that you would give us the courage to make that step. Lord, we love you. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, you guys stand with me. Thank you for being here this weekend. Uh, hopefully you guys will have a great week and we will see you next week. God bless. We hope you enjoyed this message, and remember, we also have live services out in our West Auditorium on Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings. Or you can always join us live online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages to hear these messages in real time.